An early photo opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> journalist pouring water for an actor. <laughs> Unheard of. Good evening and welcome to this in-house event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Ruth Wishart and it's my very great pleasure to be chairing this event. Um, our author, of course, this evening is better known as an actor who's had more glitzy parts than you can shake a stick at. Uh, most recently, you've probably seen him on television in Sea of Souls or Criminal Justice or on the big screen in Miss Potter or in Amazing Grace. Bill never seems to be doing any resting, which is supposed to be a facet of his trade, which is why it's amazing that he found the time to write a series of Radio 4 talks, and even more amazing that he's managed now to replicate these in a book, Tales from the Back Green. Tales from the Back Green is a book that I read in one greedy gulp because it turns out that um, it exactly describes chunks of my own childhood um, because we were both born in uh, the place known to inmates and intimates as the dear green place of Glasgow. As it happens, ladies and gentlemen, we were actually born just a few weeks apart. And if <laughs> 42 now, years ago. Careful. If anybody out there is thinking, doesn't she look old compared with him? <laughs> you can leave now no matter what the stewards say. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the warmest of welcomes to one of Scotland's best loved sons, Bill Patterson. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what we're going to do to make sure you get the full benefit of the mellifluous, mellifluous, nice tones that you know so well, um, is Bill's going to read from various bits of the book, um, four or five little chunks of the book, and then I'm going to have a wee word with him, and then he's going to be all yours. So the book covers, as I say, a whole raft of uh, experiences from his childhood. The first one is called um, A Very Bad Thing, which indeed it was because it was his attempt to recreate in Deniston the H-bomb. Over to you. <laughs> It had been the longest and hottest that any of us could remember that summer of 1955. So long and so hot that a fear had spread among us. The fear had a name that was new to us and which was sounded strangely like the brand name of those new suites with the hole in the middle which were quite dear at tuppence a packet. It was a fear haunted by newsreels of clanking great machines called iron lungs and young lives stopped in their tracks. It's polio time. A mother's voice ran round the darkening quadrangle of tenements and one of our more cautious pals would leave the back green and head for an early bed at seven o'clock. Lots of sleep was said to be the great protection and jags. For as long as anyone could recall, our communal half acre was known as the back green, although there were rumors that in other parts of the city, they were known as back courts. Neither the name came anywhere near close to describing those tight oblongs of beaten earth created by five stories of sandstone cliffs. Sometimes of year, these tenement walls were too high to allow the pale wintry sunlight to creep over. This left a permanent midwinter gloom, just like those valleys in the Alps or that loch near Glencoe that my dad had told me about. True, there was the occasional patch of green in our back green, usually at the bottom of the Rhone pipes, or round the concrete bases of the air raid shelters, but even those sturdy survivors stood in constant threat of being ripped out and used in a clod fight. Perhaps unwittingly we were concerned with the redistribution of what little vegetation, vegetation there was, because I believe greenness has returned to that corner of Deniston, 
and I would like to think that we played our part. However, as I say, in that long part summer of 1955, there was little but beaten black earth and dust. Dust so deep and so fine that you could scuff it along behind you to give the impression of being a stagecoach in one of those corners of the Arizona Badlands we saw every Saturday morning at the Gaumont British Picture House. Dust so grey that it looked like the stuff that came out of Hoover's and may well have been. Dust of such doubtful pedigree that just the look of it said polio. Some use had to be found for this dust, something more tangible than Arizona dust trails, something more creative than primitive mud pies. And this is where the icon of that year came into focus. You'll have heard of it, of course, it was the bomb. Britain was joining the H-bomb club. We had moved on from that simple old atomic thing and we'd become one of the big three. The world was moving to the brink. Khrushchev was already there with Eisenhower and Antony Eden was determined not to be left behind. The Cold War was getting colder and in our corner of the back green we had started our first tentative experiments to imitate the effects of nuclear fission. You see, nothing was more suitable for creating mushroom clouds than back green dust. Wasn't that what they were made from anyway? And we knew quite a bit about mushroom clouds. They could be found again and again in our comics, Scottish movie tone news, bubblegum cards everywhere. It was the dominant image of the day, rivaled only by that rounded oblong of the TV screen which framed it so well. We had seen so many of these clouds that we wanted our very own. And the dust was waiting. And something very terrible happens to that dust, but you need to buy the book to find out what. <laughs> the next extract Bill is going to read is, uh, concerns a four-letter word that's uh, not very popular in Edinburgh just at the moment. Tram. Oh, trams. <laughs> trams, yes. Very, yes, it's a, they're and, uh, very dodgy. I never thought it would lead to the, the death threats, but here it is, you know. <laughs> this is from a story called The Twilight of the Trams. Some say that you can measure the end of Glasgow as a great commercial city from the day that they scrapped the last tram. Certainly few cities in the world, and none in Britain, were as devoted to a tramway system. Trams were to Glasgow what gondolas are to Venice. The whole city seemed made for them. The long straight blocks four stories high, the grid of the streets, the canyons of the city centre, where the tram cars queued like a conveyor belt and you could have walked the whole length of Renfield Street on their roofs. The scale of the tram seemed totally in keeping with the tenements that surrounded them and filled them with passengers. They were almost like red, green and gold miniatures of the buildings themselves. Maybe if the trams hadn't been so bright and the tenements hadn't been so black, they wouldn't have stayed in the memory so long. Different in Venice. The Venetians sailed through their golden city in jet black. Glaswegians did the opposite. When the last trams disappeared in 1962, they say there hadn't been so many people in the streets since VE Day. And grown men wept and held their children up to touch them as they passed. That's how much we loved them. No surprise then that when the trams went, an awful lot of streets in Glasgow just gave up the ghost 
and went with them. So sudden, so total. He really ought to have read that with a shugle in his voice, shouldn't he? <laughs> um, the next one uh, concerns a, a, a kind of elderly neighbour that uh, Bill and his pals, whose house Bill and his pals used to frequent. Though I suspect he wasn't the 103 that he claimed to be. This is from up at Mr Baird's. He was, uh, was claimed to be 103. He was probably not much older than Ruth and I. <laughs> in his prime, in, in other his words. Prime. <laughs> Mr Baird really only got electricity so that he could have a radio all these wires for something called a wireless. <laughs> but compared to everything else in the house, his big powerful ultra was state of the art. And it wasn't for the Goon Show or Take It From Here or Uncle Mac's children's favorites. It was for Hilversum and Cologne and Marseille and for Warsaw and even Radio Budapest. For Mr. Baird was a linguist and claimed more than a nodding acquaintance with several European languages. His was the only house we knew where French was a second language. He loved the sound of the chanson that came through loud and clear from Lyon and Paris. Christine said that her dad said that he knew someone who said that Mr. Baird was a spy. <laughs> in that case, he must have been a very British sort of spy because the only thing he ever wanted in return for all that iron brew was that we should love the British Empire as much as he did. People said he was something called an empire loyalist. I always got that mixed up with the Empire Biscuits that you could get at the city bakeries. <laughs> he believed that we were the lost tribes of Israel and that we were here to do God's will on earth and that Winston Churchill was almost a living saint. You mix that with a good dose of Calvinist Bible teaching and you can tell that the one thing that never flowed through Mr. Baird's kitchen was the Red Clyde. <laughs> but for such a staunch patriot, Mr. Baird was our first real internationalist. His Languages, his holidays spent as a passenger on cargo ships plying to Bordeaux and Naples and Istanbul were truly exotic for kids who had never been further than Largs. And always there was a postcard, usually with a bit of history lesson, and the promise that one day we'd all see these places for ourselves. He was right, of course, although I've still not made it to Istanbul. Just like a lot of things, most of us would never speak any language other than English, some of us lucky if we could even manage that. And the British Empire would never be as important in our lives as Mr. Baird had wanted. Not after Suez, not after Elvis. It was Mr. Baird's bad luck that both these catastrophes arrived more or less in the same month. <laughs> and it was our good luck that we were there to make the most of it. The next little reading, ladies and gentlemen, is from a chapter called the 1955 World Cup. Now, the pedantic members of the audience may suggest that there wasn't a World Cup in 1955, but then mm. they weren't in Deniston at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a wee bit of the background I filled it in with it. The whole city seemed to move to the rhythm of sport. You joined the Life Boys to play football. You went to Sunday school to play football. You, you had school holidays for no other purpose than to play football. And you didn't just have to play the game, you had to support it as well. And that was when things get darker in Glasgow and in the back green. Of the half dozen Glasgow clubs we could support, by far the nearest to the back green was Celtic Park at Parkhead, or Paradise, as it was known. 
So, the, so near that when the wind on a Saturday afternoon was from the southeast, you could tell when Celtic had scored. It would come as a swelling, rumbling surge like a giant clearing his throat, and we would look up from what we were doing with faces racked in pain and muttered things like, jammy so-and-sos, <laughs> or even worse. You see, just because they were our nearest team didn't mean that we could support them. Oh, no. Nothing could be that simple. We were from the other side of that blue-green divide that split the city like a crevasse. We were expected, or nay, required, to support that other team in a ground far away across the city where even a Force 10 Southwester couldn't have carried the Rangers' roar to Deniston. Instead of a walk to paradise with the green and white hordes that passed our close, we had to ride in a tram into town and travel seven stops in the underground to reach our alleged Valhalla at Ibrooks Park. And for a while I did. There'll be sad hearts in the Vatican tonight, was the poetic image conjured up. <laughs> when Rangers did well and Celtic did badly, and I used to imagine a papal enclave sitting round the fire <laughs> on a wintry evening checking his pools, the pools, <laughs> checking the pools results from the Scottish Home Service. A deep gloom would settle over Castel Gandolfo as news would come through from Petodri, a dense park of a Celtic defeat. And even at Sunday school, I somehow managed to combine the sacred and profane by drawing the outside right Willie Waddle, driving a ball into the net just behind the three wise men in the nativity scene. <laughs> All my biblical drawings had a blue jersey in there somewhere. The five loaves and two fishes would feed 5,000 plus a ranger center forward in full kit. <laughs> But the love affair came to a violent end one Saturday when we saw an ugly and bloody melee outside Ibrooks Park and my dad said, never again. We'll get another wee extract in a moment, but I just want to tease out one or two of these bits. I don't know if you remember, Bill, um, just in that last... There was, a, there was a song extant about that time which was... Oh, Charlie Shaw, he never saw where Willie Waddle put the ball. Yeah, was it, because it was Morton as well, Alan Morton put the ball. I think it, as long as it, had two, it could scan with two syllables each word, you could put any player in you like. could be How Willie Waddle. I'm curious now, I mean, you've spent a huge amount of your working life in London. I'm curious how all that bit of Glasgow, the kind of less savoury side of Glasgow, looks from a distance. Yeah, well, it, it's got, it, it, was, it wasn't savoury at the time, I don't think. I don't think it was savoury here in Edinburgh. I mean, I think it remains, you know, there's that rift that is a part of Scottish life that most of us have tried to, tried to avoid or tried to, tried to ameliorate in some way. You know, there is a, the Hibs uh, Hearts divide in Edinburgh and, it's, and it exists everywhere. Um, it, it's never been a pretty one. And since I kind of grew up through quite a, a strict, uh, or quite a strong, I wouldn't say strict, a quite a strong influence of the church, which is in one of the stories, um, it was always surprising how, how I, I wasn't encouraged by parental encouragement for my dad or whatever, ever to take part in any of the, of the, of the, the, the sectarianism that, that you could have done. And he was very str strongly against that. And so I, I cherish him to this day for that. Uh, that didn't stop us going on Sunday school trips singing horrendous songs. I mean, so, you know, quite, quite, quite frightening if you, you know, in present day uh, sensibilities that, uh, Which you know, probably better not repeat. Better not repeat. And a minister would be sitting up the front of the bus uh, quietly con conducting, you know. <laughs> you know? 
So it, it, it's, it, it's, what you, it's what you maybe don't know, of course, is that um, Bill's dad was was Church of Scotland royalty. He was the he was the session clerk, um, and uh, so that meant going to St George's Tron, yeah. and it meant um, if we just mention him in passing because he was quite a huge figure of that year, Tom Allen. Yeah, Tom Allen was a minister in St George's at a time when my dad was there, and um, in fact, my dad had been through the through the whole period and was sort of central in a way to Tom Allen's ministry there. So, yeah, the, and Tom Allen was, was, was the first, I think I say in one of the books, was one of the first kind of great men that I ever met, I think, as a wee boy. And the influence was profound, and he was, he was, a, he was a Christian socialist of, the, of a kind of an active type, a strong Labour Party supporter at a time when I guess the Church of Scotland would have been, uh, would have been on the other side of the political, you know, the progressive unionist side of things, you know. Uh, Tom Allen was was it. so it was a powerful influence on on, on all of us, and um, I, I, I treasure that time of knowing him as a wee boy. Let's um, go back to this uh, 1955 World Cup, if we may. Uh, Scotland versus the rest of the world, I think, is how it finally shook down. Yeah. But you were planning, as I understand it from the book, to have um, a rather you know a rather more elaborate contest, but you had yeah. a bit of a problem with some of the team jerseys, did you? Yeah, know? we couldn't. I mean, we thought, well, we'll have Scotland versus England, you know, but. <laughs> Can you imagine in the Glasgow 1955 finding anybody to play for England? You know, there was, a, there was one boy up the stairs whose dad came from Carlisle, but even he, he refused to. He refused it. So then we thought, well, if Scotland versus the rest of the world, you know, uh, that would give us a chance to get some of the Italian kids from the cafes involved. Did we win? We didn't. We never got past. If you read the story, we never got past the, you know, uh, kicking a ball through a window, and that was the end of it. So fortunately, uh, the game, the game. It was, I, I say in the story, it's, my, it's still my baseline for abject failure, the, the 1955 World Cup in Deniston. Yeah, yeah. You'd have had more difficulty getting somebody to wear an English jersey in 1967, I suppose. Yeah, 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 and the subscription that was set up in certain parts of Scotland to send poor Mr. Haffey to Australia in the back of that. He was the goalie, by the way. Anyway, Bill, um, two other passions as a, as a, well, several passions as a young lad. There was um, the government on a, on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Your first introduction to the movies, presumably. Well, I, I was, we did both. I don't know, most of us, maybe of a certain age, here will remember the Saturday morning picture clubs, you know, where you're going for a sixpence. And um, uh, our manager in the Deniston Parade was, was, a, was a brave soul because he tried to organise this uh, sing-song in the middle of it, you know, with a bouncing ball. Not <laughs> like this. <laughs> I didn't realise that was up there. Um, and it was a kind of handwritten sign, and it consisted, one of the songs was the Gormont British uh, Club song, which would you possibly remember? We come along on Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile. We come along on Saturday morning knowing that it's well worthwhile. As members of the GB Club, we all intend to be good citizens when we grow up and champions of the free. We come along. <laughs> What's that, anyone out? It was like something out of the Hitler Youth Songbook, you know? <laughs> and uh, he, he, tried, he tried his best to control this, and he got the bums rushing off the stage. And as I say in the book, the managers didn't last long in that cinema, you know? And then you went uh, later on a Saturday, you would go to the Marne with your, with your dad, and that's yeah. simply, because I'd forgotten that. That was the origin, you said, because it was always in a loop. The movie yeah, was always, that was the origin yeah. of the phrase, this I, is where I, I come in. I think I was, well, probably into my 20s before I realised that you could go to pictures, you could work out when they're really supposed to start, you know, <laughs> 6.25 or 7.30 or something, you know. 
I thought you just kind of went in and it was, it, it was running and you just sat down. And so uh, we all know the phrase, you know, this is where we came in, was where you nudged your... your so you would know who'd done it, you just wouldn't know what he'd done. What he'd done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know. Dorothy Lamour, or that, you know, there she was. Marilyn Monroe, she was supposed to be in the film, but she must have left in the, re <laughs> in the first in reel. So, reel. Uh, so that was it. And, and I saw these because my dad was... Uh, was friendly with a manager and there was queues always outside the cinemas as you'll remember in those days for anything whatever it was and um, we could sneak in ahead by my dad looking like a, a traveling salesman going in with a kind of a, a suit on on a Saturday and I would go in behind with the, the evening news or the evening time sports pages looking like the paper boy and I'd meet him inside uh, at the manager's office and that was our sneaky way into the pictures. I've really felt it's the only moment of privilege I've ever, <laughs> I ever had until I went to a BAFTA. He uh, lied. Uh, <laughs> I went to BAFTA, yeah. You also, because one of, the, one of the great things about living in Glasgow, of course, um, among many um, great things about living in Glasgow, is that it's, it's awfully easy to get out of. Um, and yeah. you've got all these uh, lovely hills just um, within striking distance, and, and that probably was what maybe gave you your appetite for climbing. Yeah, the, the, I have a kind of, one of the stories is based on, on the idea of the road to Damascus and that you, you know, we all change our patterns and I, ch I changed my pattern within a year or so uh, around the ages of 14 or 15 by an introduction to the, to the, to the Hwangi, which is a kind of rock climbing thing just north of Glasgow, not unlike, you know, the, you've got the Pentlands just up the road there. And, um, and, and the Citizens Theatre all in the same within the same month or two, and I had a terrible dichotomy uh, all through these years of trying to reconcile climbing mountains with going to the, you know, to, to go into the theatre and trying to look cool and, and interested in, in, in Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams and Harold Pinter while looking frazzled from being up on top of the, you know, the, you know, Ben Lomond the day before. So one of these is about that dichotomy. And I think that's something that, that uh, Scottish, I think we all recognise that link between our cities and our landscape that, that, we're, that, we're, that we're very, very sort of aware of. And so I was something that really had to go and, and what went was there? Yeah, the climbing went, the climbing went, yes, I, I stopped that uh, when I fell down that r ice sheet on Ben Narnin. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that more or less ended it, yes, I, I, lost, I lost the nerve after that, yes. Yeah. I'm curious as to, I mean, you, uh, as you say in the book, you spent a huge amount of time in the upper circle at the sits. Um, as a you know, as a very young man, and I'm curious as to what or who pulled that switch for you. A good teacher, a good teacher. There was a, a, a you know, as as so often amongst all of us, you know, that that is the big influence. You get somebody who just takes you on something, sees something. I had a good teacher who was who was crazy enough to take a bunch of us on a Saturday or Thursday night, to, you know, and battle through the indifference and the and the misery that you would have to do, and and he just kept at it and nurtured that interest and said, you know, there's a little drama group attached to Jordan Hill and you could come and join that or you, you could become a member of the Citizens. Good teacher, yeah, yeah, I think so. And Ian Cuthbertson, yeah. who did a season, the great Ian Cuthbertson did a season of the Citizens in that early 60s, which was really just like, an, uh, it was like opening a catalogue of the great playwrights. And I discovered later that he, he told me he did that because he'd been told they, they were skint and if he didn't do that, they were going to close the citizens down. So uh, that was a background to that. And accidents could 
things happen at good times for, for all of us, I think. Yeah. Not all actions, though, but and you were in one of these, you know, performances in the, in the uh, productions, the citizens that came to be seminal for everybody who saw it in uh, Arturo Ui with yeah. Leonard Rossiter. And yeah. That must have been a, a terrific thrill. Well, that was a fluke. That was amazing. We, when I was at drama college, you got a fiver a week. Uh, it, it was possible to become extras in big scale productions when they needed a cast. And I just was lucky to be on the, on the one that uh, Len Rossiter was preparing to, to stagger everybody as uh, Arturo Ui in a legendary production of The Resistible Rice, which we brought to Edinburgh the following year in 1968 uh, uh, on the official festival. And then it went to London. And that's, that's another bit of luck, isn't it? When you get to be standing next to a form of greatness and uh, there's also the possibility that you're pretty good. Well, uh, you know, you saw that uh, it, it needed work and dedication and, and, and sweat. He sweated through three shirts every night in this show. He had to change his shirt three times in a theatre that probably had limited wardrobe facilities, you know. <laughs> and still yeah, does. And still does. Um, yeah. We're going to have one more reading in a moment, but, but before we have it, let's just set the scene, because you used to spend a lot of, uh, a lot of your summers in Millport. Tell us a bit mm. about that. Well, Millport is, uh, is uh, uh, on an island. You, you, many of you will know it. Uh, it was, uh, uh, it was a, a lump of red sandstone, just about the size, as I say here, of Lower Manhattan. There, the resemblance sort of ends. There's not much, there's not, not, not much after that. But, um, and I spent a whole, year, a whole month in, in simple, basic accommodation, a wee room and kitchen somewhere, and it didn't matter because he ran the streets. And... Um, I was going there for damn nearly every, every August for 20 years, and it became so Pavlovian, my response. It's still to this day, now that I'm 42, like, uh, like Ruth. I write. I, uh, I can still think of it. Uh, I still get a certain feeling, and I call it the Billport mood, and uh, I wrote uh, about that. As, 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 uh, and one of my pals who's, who's here tonight will know this, because I'm going to mention this is the last part of it. This is as we went into teenage days. And Dave is here, so you'll know who I'm talking about. Dave, was one of, Dave had one of Millport's first guitars and could play anything you asked for. While the rest of us wore shorts and air tech shirts, Dave dressed in dark jeans and suede boots, wore sunglasses at midnight, and introduced Cumbry's hipsters to Dylan as the flagons of incredibly cheap cider spiked with spin-off passed around the bonfires. The smoke in Dave's cords would drift over Kames Bay and out onto the dark waters of the Firth, where a basking shark might be cruising and hoovering up the rich pickings from these abundant waters. The Isle of Cumbria had been chosen as a marine research centre, not because it had a lemonade factory, but because the waters of the Firth of Clyde were some of the richest and the most diverse seas in Western Europe, something to do with the depth of water, the Gulf Stream and the great tidal ranges, no doubt enriched by the sludge from Glasgow's sewage works, dumped off Arden every couple of days from the legendary SS Shield Hall. These waters were teeming with nutrients. We could see this for ourselves in the cod and haddock you pulled up with just a line and a winkle for bait, in the mackerel you could catch with a twist of silver paper, in the flounders that the big boys spotted with a glass-bottomed box and speared in the sandy bay. We saw it in the rock pools swarming with shrimps and crabs and sea anemones, in the sinister conger eels that lived under Mochlin's jetty while we bailed out the motorboats, and in the pods of porpoise that leapt out of the water as they chased the shoals of herring heading for Loch Fyne to be kippered. 
I always thought that the hours spent exploring these teeming rock pools were just intervals between much more exciting adventures, but lately I've begun to wonder. Not so long ago I talked to a learned doctor who had been a biology student on that very shore while I sprockled about with my bucketed spade. I asked him why the pools seemed so empty now. Was it just fading eyesight or a clawing nostalgia for times past? He lowered his voice and told me that so much of what we had both seen in these waters 50 years ago was gone forever. Not just from Millport Bay, of course, but from all our seas. As far as our oceans are concerned, he told me, we were living then in the last days of Eden. You and I are just lucky enough to have seen them before we destroyed them. Now we're going to open, uh, open up the floor to questions from the audience and because it's the first day of the book festival and we're feeling broad-minded, you don't have to be from Glasgow to ask a question. <laughs> We've got two athletic persons with microphones and I'd be grateful if you'd wait until one of them arrives so that everybody else can hear your question. So who's going to be first to ask Bill Patterson the first question of 2008? Yes, gentleman in the middle there. Oh, look at that. You should be in Beijing. Um, Mr. Patterson, apart from your stunning good looks, um, I think um, part of your appeal for, for my wife Sheila and I is um, what uh, Ruth described as, as your mellifluous tones. At least now, you can say it. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I should like to ask you is, did you actually at any time go to elocution lessons or did you make any conscious effort to change um, the way you speak? Because well. I'm sure growing up in the east end of Glasgow, um, what, what we hear now would not have been what we heard when you were 14, 15 or 16. Well, uh, that's, uh, that, that's an interesting way. I did go through a, a horrible period. I, I just say about that time, it was like the seismic plates shifted, you know, there was a horrible where I, uh, I don't know what it, it, one of the stories deals with a little, an incident when I, I nearly joined the Royal Navy as an officer, and that involved going to the Admiralty in, in London and Portsmouth and things, and being confronted with what at the time, in, the, in 50, 1960 or 1959, was the full panoply of, of the, the public school, because all of the, uh, the other, uh, uh, what do you call it, people, you fight, candidates. You, the candidates, that's the word I look for. All the other candidates were all public school boys. And I, I was, it was a nightmare because not only did I feel about the sound of my voice and the, the, the words I maybe used, we were not brought up in a, in a culture that encouraged uh, talking. We were, we were brought up to learn uh, la lessons and to study them deeply and to be interested in that. But there was no great encouragement to, to stand up in the class and talk about it, whereas these boys did. And something happened that time, and I thought, well, I'm going to learn how to do that. And because uh, I don't know why I thought it was important, but I thought I'm going to try and learn how to do that. And so there were a couple of horrible years when I must have, I don't know, but, but I didn't go to elocution classes, no, no. And I was at drama college. I was never good at, um, at the RP. I couldn't uh, shift to sound like I came from the home counties. So I kind of developed my own voice, if you like, and, and that's the one I'm stuck with, you know. So. 
if that makes any sense. I do think there's a philosophical point in it that there was a, an age group of Scottish actors immediately before me who worked very hard to eradicate all traces of, the, of Scots and their voice. And, and some of them succeeded greatly and had, went on to great careers. The people like Ian Richardson, for example, who wonderful actor who you know, could do anything. And others who really fell by the wayside because their energies were, were dragged out of them in this attempt. And I was the first kind of bunch who were able not to do, who were allowed not to do that. We were able to, to find a voice of our own in Scotland and, and use it. And uh, you know, there, there are people like that still, including myself. You know? so that's Next. Mm. Somebody just on the, on the aisle there, thank you. <clears throat> Uh, first of all, can I apologise for Edinburgh's weather? <laughs> but that's a little gift, you could take it back to Glasgow. I didn't want to say that. This is a very silly question. Any chance of you singing the Gaumont song? I'm sure there's lots of people here who would remember it. The, Sing, Ga the Gaumont song? I, I couldn't do it again. Okay. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't. Maybe at the very end you could do it. It wouldn't be fair, you know, to, to breeze the buzz. But it's, we, show of hands those who remember the tune. No. You see, I knew it would just be me, so I'd say, well, <laughs> we'll just leave that. Thank you very much. But maybe is in the bar after, in the yurt. Is there, anybody, is there anybody from the rival ABC Miners Club here? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, that was another sectarian divide, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> forget Rangers and Celtic, Hearts and Hibs. Yeah. We were too busy with our orange yeah. maids. <laughs> see, somebody had these as well. Who yeah. else now? Somebody that's again in the aisle, but a bit further up. Oh, that's easy. Get up there. Hello. Can you hear? Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just being nosy. I live in Deniston. And when I go back home tonight, I'm kind of wondering where it was you lived. There's no blue plaque yet. No, I don't know. Above the Swallow Cafe in Alexander Parade. Really? Corner of Meadow Park Street in Alexander Parade. Park yeah. Street. Yeah. Still there, intact. Completely no, intact. Know. It's got a thing outside that says breakfast kebabs. That'll be me. That's <laughs> it. I think that referred to some of our friends at the time, you know. No, no, it's not. You see, it's a lie yeah. about the deep fried Mars bars, isn't it? Yeah. But it, it, unusual in a sense, and that'll be true of everywhere, that, that to, for cafes to have survived 60 odd years, because it must have been there at the, at the, the war, maybe even before the war. So it's a long lasting place. It'll be the same kebabs, of course, but uh, <laughs> the cafe's been there for ages, yeah. yeah. Who else? Yes, somebody in the front. Oh, there's here. an easy one. I think it's an easy it's just put it up beside your mouth. Okay, I was just wondering, you were talking about the trams. Did you have any experience with the clippies? Oh, yeah, yeah I mean, you mean any unpleasant experience? <laughs> no, yes. I don't think he means of a sexual nature. No, 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 no. Oh, far too young for that. No, no. Yeah, I, I guess we did, yes. I, I mean, it's all the legendary that they were great fun. And I, I remember that the funny thing I remember most about the, the, the clippies was that for, for a chunk of the year, in the, in the, during the student holidays, they became students. And I don't think that happened in the Edinburgh trams as well, but the uh, students were available to do this. And they would sign up. And so there's quite a famous, a very good friend of mine who's responsible for this book in here will know, a very well-known radio director who spent his summer holidays cruising the tram lines of Glasgow as a student, because he's one of these slightly, you know, he's a good radio director, but there's a whiff of the anorak. Uh, <laughs> 
in terms of the tram car about him, and he took endless photographs of, of uh, trams. And, and so I always remember the students almost more than the clippies, because they would be very interesting, sort of pale and interesting young people uh, standing on the, on, the, on the decks of tram cars, uh, trying to control the Glasgow mobs. Uh, they were brave. Somewhat unfortunate phrases are not cruising Glasgow. Cruising in Glasgow in a, yeah, quite a good title for a book. Yeah. Yeah. Tales from Back Green Part 2. Yeah. Next, please. Yes, lady over there. I just want very quickly to say that going back to the 1960s, um, Mordor Ewan MacDonald of St George's West told a very funny story about the clippies. And it was one time he was in Glasgow and it was snowing and the tram came and they all piled on and um, the clippy was upstairs taking the fares and she came back down and she said, Oh, you shins was snan your bonnets. Ah. You can't top it, you see, that's a bunch of it. You did put quite a lot about um, the, the physical business of the trams in the bill because um, these kind of compartments at the, at the back and the front upstairs, um, which yeah. weren't first class at all, but gave no, you the... No, no, you remember, they, they always had a wee bit at the front, and you would, I mean, as kids, you, you bagged that at the front. And you could, on the old cars, the, on the, the more, the canardas, the 30s type, I don't think you could do it so easily, but the, the old cars, you could just lean out the window and turn the, and change the destination board. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so Gifnock became Karen Wadrick. And, <laughs> And I say in the book that I, I, I didn't do that because I didn't think it was funny enough. I thought if, you, if I could have changed it to Casablanca, I would have done it every time. But I didn't think Karen Wadrick was funny enough. So, uh, yeah, there was, they were lovely, really. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a picture in the book that, that is it's a, it's a real sign of imbecility when you, when you see pictures and you think, that's me in that picture. But there's a, there is one, and I think it is my mother and I, on a tram going along... Uh, uh, Alexander Parade, and I'm almost certain it is. I would, you know, I would, there's no, there'll never be definitive proof of it, so I could tell you anything and you'd have to believe me, but uh, it's in there, and that was, of course, I know it's me because I bagged the back seat, you know, uh, in the, in the, right above the, the destination board, yeah. I should tell you, ladies and gentlemen, because Bill said, you know, you've got to believe me, I could tell you anything. We met by accident on a, a, an Edinburgh to Glasgow train about three or four months ago, yeah. and Bill was going back, and he was going back specifically that evening um, because he wanted to walk around the places that he was talking about in the book to make sure that he hadn't got it all wrong, so the research is uh, more meticulous than he would have you believe. Yeah, yeah. More questions? Yes, somebody in the middle there, thank you. Sorry about that train, all the way. Hi, um did you enjoy writing the book? And um, hello. Oh, hello. Oh, you're there. <laughs> She's throwing her voice. Stereophonic. <laughs> Where I'm, is that person? I'm here. Oh, hello. <laughs> that person is here. Did you enjoy writing the book? And do you think you would write another one? Well, you see, I'm glad I finally somebody's given me the chance to say the, the, the book was written uh, as, as radio stories. I, I, I didn't write it as a book. I wrote them for radio stories for... In the first case, the very first one, I wrote as a, because I'd wanted to hear what another voice sounded like uh, doing my words, having wrecked other people's words for decades in, in scripts. I thought it would be interesting to hear. So I sent it to, to the uh, BBC Short Stories under a false name, Mr. 
Cameron, Tulloch Cameron, who's a kind of middle name. So mine. And they wrote back to Mr. Cameron to say that they had liked the story and they were, they were planning to ask an actor like Bill Patterson to read it. <laughs> and I, and everybody, I, I, so somebody in a paper the other day said that that sounded like a, you know, a marketing ploy, and I promise you it's not, it's true. And so I, 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 instead of saying I won't have Patterson anywhere near my writing, <laughs> you know, get Brian Cox or, you know, get Peter Capaldi, he'll be cheaper, you know, or something. I said, I, I kind of owned up, and they said, well, that's nicer because it's quite nice to have a story written and read by. So that then led uh, a very dear friend, Marlon Emery, to, to commission, uh, to ask the BBC Scotland to commission me to do five of them. And so they were written purely as, as radio scripts, and people heard them on the radio and were going into bookshops and saying, could we get a copy of them? have they been published and that then led to publishers coming to me so i only enjoyed writing them because they were very specifically 14 minutes and 10 seconds long you know they're really cut to a very definite cloth which a proper writer would be wouldn't want to do because they would say you know that's uh, that whereas somebody like me it was a it was a discipline that that made it possible that I wouldn't have been able to, I had a waffled on and, and given up or, it was, the, the, the discipline was important. So I enjoyed that, yes. But didn't, isn't it true that you put back all the bits that had been cut out that had run over 14 minutes? I was able, yeah, well that's what you could do when you can, uh, there are some bits there. So people, if you read it now and try to get them down while reading it aloud, you won't manage it in 14 minutes, 10 <laughs> seconds. You'll wonder if you, you got it wrong, yeah. Now, somebody here. Yeah, um, you kind of answered actually some of the things I was going to say because I, I'm from, I grew up in the Gorbals and I'm kind of tired of the kind of mythology of growing up in Glasgow. An awful lot of, there's a whole genre of books yeah. there, you know, the sort of Julie piece and there's always a pot of lentil soup, you know, and yeah. it's all happy. I just, I've not read your book yet, but I just sort of, I wondered about you felt There's quite about a lot that. about Julie pieces, there, now, there's a bit, whole chapters, no, there's not. There's not. No, but you know what I mean? There yeah, is this kind of mythology yeah. and all this sort of genre of all these books. Yeah. Edinburgh's got its own counterparts. I just wonder what you felt about contributing yeah. to that. But I'm interested that the radio pieces, that's quite interesting. Yeah. So it's from a spoken word. Yes, yeah, exactly. No, I always thought, I'm, I'm very aware of that. I, 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 I didn't, didn't want, it wasn't instinctive in me anyway to do any kind of Dreekism. You know, I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't, it, it, they came out quite optimistically memories of a, of a childhood or a, of a youth without me struggling to make it that. So I don't apologize for that, but I know that they're not as, they're, I've tried in a way if they, to tread the line between shoes were for Sunday, you know, and, and couthy memories that were nice and miserabilism. It, it's, it, the background is the Glasgow that I grew up in and I touch on it from time to time. And, but I didn't struggle to make them nice, nor to make them drich. They're just how they came out. And I've, my argument for myself is that I've, I've spent a lot of time um, on televisions and things making people miserable. You know, I've done an awful lot of pretty miserable things uh, in, the, in the kind of television stuff I've done particularly. I didn't feel any need to make them miserable in these stories. You know. The, the, you the, the Citizens Theatre and things, there was always that other side of Glasgow yeah, as well. It was yeah. very much available for all of, of us course. who grew up in that area. Yeah. So it's just, I just yeah. wondered about that. But it's just that they, these, I think people are always surprised that any place has complexities. Mm. 
And Glasgow has always been narrowed down, and yeah. or I tend to have been, to one image or another. And it's a complex, and it was a deeply complex city in its, in its heyday of, of industrial power and, and, uh, and comfortable middle classes and solid, hard-working, working classes. And everything was, it was a gigantically complex city of a million-plus people making virtually everything you could think of. So, you know, there was no simple, simple one-sided thing to Glasgow. And we all speak with broad accents either. Yeah. I'm curious to know what you thought about Gorbals. No, hang on for a minute. Gorbals becoming new Gorbals. Do you think that's a trick, um, uh, a marketing trick, or do you think that that mattered? Um, well, I really missed the Gorbals because we got rehoused up to Castle Milk. I mean, the, the, you know, and our whole lives were transformed. And what used to happen was we'd all go on the 37 bus and go back down yeah. um, as long as we could. So then I saw this sort of like happening as I grew up and you know went to university and so on and so forth. Saw this other side. Um, I find a, a great sadness that so much of it was raised to the ground. Yeah. When we look back at Oscar Mazzaroli's photographs and others. Much of it, you know, was not necessary. Although obviously there had to be some um, attention paid to the particular slums. So yeah, I look back and think, gosh, you know, if to go back there now, I would uh, need to sort of uh, become a sort of like a sort of millionaire to buy yeah. one of these uh, houses overlooking Glasgow Green where I used to play. Yeah, I think the violence of the of the rebuilding of Glasgow is, is colossal, and it was always violent. I mean, the the rebuilding from its many medieval city to the Georgian city was violent. You know, the very little of it survived. The Georgian city was flattened by the Victorian city. We came along, and I, I, one of my stories, because I was in the building trade in the, in the, early, in the mid, early to mid-60s, I was right in the midst of that and, uh, and on two levels. Um, so we did it violently. Edinburgh always was much more, you could write, you could have entire theses on how different the cities rebuilt themselves. Edinburgh moved out, maintaining each section and leaving it. Glasgow built on top of it, and and and, it, and it's, that's what it did again in the 60s and the 70s, and 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 in another form today. Bill, you mentioning yeah. in a in a very brief uh, reference there to your um, shortening of career as a quantity surveyor, Shortly, which yeah. gives me the chance to ask you what the Polaroid hydrosextant is. Yes, uh, well, the, the, the Polaroid hydrosextant. It took me a long time to discover. It was a was a was an an, an object that was covered in. A brown paper, a very odd shaped thing that trekked between our quantity surveying office and the, um, the cooperative surveying department, Scottish SCWS surveying department. And it would trek there carried by innocent rookie apprentices. It was like, you know, the, you know when you're sent out for tartan paint or a left-handed screwdriver or a sky hook, you know, a hook to hang in the sky. Um, the, uh, we were, that was our version, and I was, deliver, I was meant to deliver it. So I used the imagery of taking that Polaroid hydrosextant through the city while it was being rebuilt by some of us were doing that rebuilding in the office. And I'd use that as the metaphor for, for a big change in Glasgow in the mid-60s. So it, it, I had to smash up the Polaroid hydrosextant, poignantly, I might say. Uh, and there's, if, you, if you buy the book, you can read that story, of course. Yeah. I've got to say, that's very yeah. thin detail. He's obviously determined you're all going to buy one. <laughs> let's, have, uh, let's have some more questions. You're awfully quiet up there. Oh, no. no you can here. probably hardly hear it for the monsoon. But. There's, uh, there's two people down here. If we could just take them in sequence, please. Either or. Thanks very much. Hello. Um, you said you couldn't do 
or didn't want to do RP. But I remember you as a crazy American in the Cheated the Sag and <laughs> the Black yeah. Boy, yeah. which um, you did to perfection, although the Americans might not have liked that yes. portrayal of. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was quite good at that in those days. Some of those yeah, phrases mm. that have stayed yeah. with me still. Imagine if you scan, yeah. um, you know. Picture of you as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes, and I've yeah. not forgotten them. So you could certainly do that. Yeah, I did, I did my share of that. That's true. Yes, these. But I mean, that was that was a pretty it was pretty front cloth stuff in those days. You know that of of the cheviot was yeah. uh, was was so much. Uh, uh, you know, it was it was variety theatre we were doing. I mean, it was. It was a great thing to do, but my God, this is this is getting serious. I mean, man, the lifeboats. We haven't got a lot of time before the canoes arrive to take to the, the signing tent. So let's just get, get the other lady at the front there. Somebody here? Yep. Thank you. Now, if you could just shout into the microphone. Yes, if you just, I'll get, I'll get the host. I heard your five stories on the radio and thought they were fantastic, but am I going to be able to buy a full version of the book on well, audio? Th th this lady who works entirely for the publicity department of Hodder, clearly. <laughs> as you've asked exactly right. Is there, there is a CD available, yeah, because I initially I really wanted Oh, gee, I'm, I'm exhausted. Is that a drink? <laughs> Is there going to be a drink after this? I, I wanted the CD to be published with the, with the book, but there's apparently difficulties uh, with VAT, and books are VAT, uh, not VAT-rated CDs are, there's problems. So it is, it's available. It's separate at the moment, but it is available, yes. Um, <laughs> Who's on after me? <laughs> I think it's the weatherman. Um, I, have to, I have to say that it's probably Bill's fault because one of the, the, the chapters from which he read an excerpt is called The Last Days of Eden. The subtitle is The Last Days I, of Mankind, I think. I, I went to the Hay Festival to, to read something and the same thing happened there. So Maybe they're trying to yeah, tell you something. I took yeah. it to the, the Welsh borders, never mind this. You know. Would anybody else like to shout a question? Yes. Somebody up there? We'll just come up and talk to you up there, I think. You better be. <laughs> I'll shout. I was just going to say the first play I think I ever saw was The Chevy at the Stag and The Black Black Oil on television because being in Greenock, we, we, we did have a theatre, but we never went. I was going to ask you, we've now got a national theatre for Scotland. As a young actor, you went off to England. If you were a young actor in Scotland again, would you stay in Scotland or do you think you'd still have to go to London? Yeah, no, I, 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 a good question because I think the National Theatre of Scotland is a, a fantastically success. It's a wonderful concept and I know people, uh, I, was, I personally wasn't much more involved in signing bits of paper and things, but the instinct to make it not a building, but to make it a, 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 an overall uh, umbrella organisation, I think was inspired in the end because it's created uh, this free form, free form thing. So I think the National Theatre of Scotland, and when I, I saw recently twice, I saw the Black, uh, Black Watch, I saw it twice within a week because I, I thought it was so... It, it, the effect of the Cheviot and in some ways 
was, 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 was strong as the Black Watch, but the Black Watch has taken it to another level. So the, 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 position, the position in Scotland now is healthier than I think it was in the 70s for actors because there's, there is that option. There's much more variability. There's probably less television now and for, than there was in those days when BBC Scotland was really turning out quite a lot of things. But uh, I, I personally uh, didn't go to England because of you know, some decision. I just, life takes over from you. You, know, you move somewhere, things happen to you, and as, to, to paraphrase John Lennon, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. You know, I, I would guess if, uh, if I was here with a black watch, I'd be doing the tour and I would be back here afterwards. So I think it is, it's a good situation for, for, for Scottish actors just now. There is one quick question, we could just put it in. Yes, somebody waving at the front there. Hello. Uh, Hello. I haven't yet read your book, uh, but I wondered um, if part of your memories of Glasgow, I'm not from Glasgow myself, but I'm from the West Coast, and part of my memories of Glasgow um, centre around a lot of dancing in the wonderful dance halls that we had in that era that you're talking about yeah. the Locarno and Denison yeah. Pally and all yeah, over well, the city. Denison Pally was just a, you know, my, my school science laboratory was built onto the back of it. So uh, you could just sneak through. They had, they had afternoon discos. Well, they didn't call it discos. I mean, some lunchtime sessions, I think they called it. But I, my, my family was my brother's generation. He was the dancer. He went to the mall. And he, went, he used to go to a place called the Magic Stick. And I used to ask, what's this place, the magic? I will go to the magic stick tonight, Dad, uh, John, Billy. And it was the majestic. <laughs> but it was... It was <laughs> I love that. It was a magic stick tonight. So I love... And my mother's generation, my, she was a, her and my dad, she, my mother only measured people, or men, uh, her, her old boyfriends, by the quality of their dancing. You know, people would remember till the end of her life by whether they were good dancers or not. Uh, Oh yeah, he was a real dancer. No, he was not, was, you know. So, um, yeah, Glasgow, but I, but I personally was not a big, uh, I just missed that, that part of it, you know. But it was certainly infiltrated our family life for sure, yes. Yeah. In the words of the late, great Hemi Shimlich, are you dancing? No, it's just the way I'm stoning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this, um, I, I'm, I would say this, wouldn't I? But uh, Tales in the Back Green is just a smashing read. Uh, it's a particularly good read for those of us of a certain age. We were discussing a certain age earlier on, and we've concluded that your prime is exactly five years ahead of where you are now. So come back and read the sequel um, when Bill's in his prime. But meantime, you'll be able to buy Tales in the Back Green now. I'd be really grateful if you'd let us get off here. The signing tent is left and left again. I'd also like you, first of all, before we thank Bill, to thank a woman who has learned how to do sign language in Glaswegian as well as many other languages. <laughs> Joe Ross. I should say one other thing by way, of a, by way of a plug, which is that Bill, being the kind of guy Bill is, um, is giving all the royalties of the book he sells tonight to uh, the National Youth Theatre of Scotland. So another good reason for buying Tales to the Back Green. Bill Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.